Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's discussion will be centered around neurotransmitters, happiness, feel-good chemicals, and rewiring the human brain. And joining me in, we have Loretta Bruning. Loretta, welcome to the show. Hi, nice being here. Awesome. So maybe Loretta, did you want to let my listeners know a little bit about how you got so fascinated into understanding happiness and the human brain? Sure. When I was young, I saw a lot of unhappiness around me and I was trying to always understand, like, what is everybody so upset about? So it wasn't like obvious to me and I certainly didn't want it blamed on me. So then when I got older and I discovered that there was this field of psychology, I was very interested in that, but it never really clicked for me. Like academic psychology was never a satisfying explanation. And so I devoured like more and more of it. And because it wasn't my primary profession, I could go into every different variety because usually you have to commit to one of them. And Over the years, I think I connected the dots, but it wasn't until I started reading about the animal brain and the chemicals that make us feel good are the same in animals. And I was like, wow, to me, that explained everything. So that's a short version. (laughs) Awesome. So I guess when it comes to like understanding mammals and animals themselves, like 
how do they actually measure happiness in mammals, for example? I'm not about measuring at all. So that's why I think I'm a little frustrated with academic psychology, because these experiments, you could really come up with whatever you want to confirm your existing belief. But basic biology is not really about measuring. So Mm. dopamine is a chemical. Animals have the same chemical. In humans, our dopamine is is managed by brain structures that are the same in animals. So Mm. the intellectual verbal part of the human brain does not manage the chemicals. So it's like we have the same animal engine inside us. And then we have the big mouth philosophizing brain on top of it. But the core animal brain, it's like a GPS system. It uses a happy chemical to tell you, this is good for you, go toward it. And it uses a stress chemical to say, this is bad for you, pull back. And that's all we're doing all the time. But then our big mouth human brain is coming up with good reasons. (laughs) That's really fascinating, Loretta. I'd like to actually go deep into dopamine itself because i've spoken about that extensively on my youtube channel and things like that maybe do you want to explain to my listeners first of all like what are the major functions of dopamine in in the human brain sure so first everyone has already heard the medical approach that is generally taken of this which mostly focuses on something going wrong which Mm. presumes that if there's not a disorder that it's just effortlessly all the time that you have dopamine just the way you have blood. And if you don't, it's, oh, the doctor can get you some. When animals, no, that's not how it works. You get a burst of dopamine when you see a reward that can meet a need because that motivates you to go toward it. And it would be stupid to have dopamine all the time because then it would lose its reward value, would lose its information value, and you'd go toward everything and waste your energy and end up starving because animals have a really hard time finding enough food to stay alive. So that's another thing that people don't understand. They think in the state of nature, everything's just happy and effortless all the time. But in fact, uh, if you watch nature videos, like how much animals struggle to get enough nutrition. Mm, That's really interesting. I guess when it comes to like the dopamine release portion, the aspect there, what about dopamine release without any effort? So for example, I know you've mentioned, you've mentioned obviously like certain illicit substances like cocaine, for example, can powerfully raise dopamine, but obviously there's no, there was no effort to release that dopamine. So do you want to expand upon that? Two things. One is you're correct that cocaine is like dopamine in in a way, like a quote, like reuptake inhibitor, which means whatever dopamine you already have, it's not getting reabsorbed. So it stays in your system longer. So you get more bang for your each dopamine release and you're releasing dopamine before you take the cocaine. You released it yourself because you have positive expectations. You're saying, wow, this is going to be really good. That triggers your dopamine. And then the cocaine keeps it circulating. So it's all an illusion. And the, I think the problem to me is that a lot of people have So 
academic psychology has been taken over by Buddhism and people have put their beliefs above science. And the belief is that you should be happy without trying, that it's bad to try. And so if there's real biological evidence that it comes from trying, then they're just going to ignore it. But the bottom line is that an animal is always trying to get food and water, and then it's trying to get mating opportunity, and it's trying to get warmth and protection from predators, and it would die if it didn't constantly try. So we've inherited our brain from ancestors who survived, which is hard, and a lot of them died, but ours survived because they tried. So if you think there's like a taboo on trying, you cannot understand your own brain. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I guess with what about as far as like the the balance between dopamine and serotonin, there's a lot of discussion around that if one increases, the other decreases, which is probably not correct. But maybe did you want to expand upon the balance between these neurotransmitters? Sure. So the concept of balance was made up by doctors because when the drug companies came up with antidepressants, they needed a friendly way to to market it so that people could feel that they needed it in a way that they understood that was comfortable. So it's, oh, that there's an imbalance in your brain chemicals. There, there's no such thing. It's just, it was just made up from the beginning. And I think even psychiatrists are admitting that now, but There is what I explain in my books, there's a trade-off between the chemicals. There's not meant to balance. It's like, we need all of them. They all take effort. And if I put more of my effort into getting one, I might put less into getting another. Sometimes they go together. For example, if I'm working really hard to get a promotion, the effort and the advancement triggers dopamine. And then if I get the promotion, that triggers serotonin. But then sometimes they're opposite. Like for example, if I'm really working hard to get a promotion, maybe I'm not working so hard to plan parties with my friends. So I'm getting less of that warm and fuzzy oxytocin, but I'm getting more of the dopamine and serotonin. So that's not a disorder. That's like the facts of life. And we're lucky that we have a choice of where to invest our energy. Mm. And in regards to, I guess, the payoff, Loretta, for example, once somebody receives or achieves an outcome that they set or a particular goal, let's say they've, they've met their goal and through the help of dopamines help to drive them towards achieving that goal, how does the opioid network play a role in pleasure, like the pleasure response there? Sure. So opioid has a totally different function. It's a chemical endorphin when the body makes it. Opioid is the artificially produced, but our body makes its own opioid called endorphin, which is a word that comes from endogenous morphine, because that's what people used to call it. And in the body, it's only released when you're in physical pain. So if you imagine a gazelle is attacked by a predator and its flesh is ripped open, but if it runs, it could still save its life. So how do you run when you're in terrible pain? So the body has this adaptation that endorphin masks pain with a good feeling that gives you about 50 
15 minutes to save your life. After that, you feel the pain because you need to protect your injury. So if you imagine a caveman and they break their leg, endorphin masks pain for about 15 minutes so they can get help. And then they got to stop walking on the broken leg so they feel the pain. Mm -hmm. So we are not meant to create pain just to get the endorphin. So the other chemicals are there to motivate certain behaviors, but endorphin is there, uh, opioid is there just for emergency. So yes. there's different, you use the word pleasure, there's different kinds of good feelings. And that's why in my book, I talk about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endorphin, there are different kinds of good feelings. And we want all of them, but we're not meant to just float on a cloud of all of them all the time. And the irony is that Love triggers all of them, and that's why people are so motivated by love. Yeah, you've already caught me with with the next topic, and that was going to be around love. And obviously, we can all appreciate that love is highly necessary for survival and and feeling happy. So do you want to expand upon what are some of the chemicals that, that are released after, let's say, falling in love? And also, I'm curious to know, curious to hear your thoughts on why is it that within some couples that love can fade over time? What What's fading? Sure. So dopamine is the excitement. I'm just about to meet a need. So if you imagine a monkey sees food in the distance and it's really hungry and it's, oh, wow, there it is. And so it's that excitement of if I get it, it will meet my needs. So when all of your food needs are met and water and warmth, then love is very motivating. It stimulates your dopamine and you think, oh, if I get that person, I'll be happy forever. But then once you get them, the the dopamine stops because its job is only to get your attention to a new opportunity to meet your needs. And once you've already met that need, however you define the need, which is very individual, however you define it at that moment in your life, then the dopamine stops. So if you imagine if a monkey is excited about finding a banana, it's not going to stay excited forever about the same banana. So the dopamine stops. And then later when the monkey gets hungry again, then it looks around and then more more dopamine from more bananas. Now, I am not saying that you should <laughs> continually look for new partners, but needless to say, that's, yeah, so that that's the risk at the primal level, right? So now what else is going on? So there are rewards to long-term relationships. And if you have a long-term relationship and get those rewards, which we could talk about in a minute, then You may not get as much dopamine from your relationship, but you could get dopamine from other things. And then you get more oxytocin from your relationship or more serotonin or endorphin, depending on, I could talk about what feelings stimulate the others. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to, I would love to dive deep into, (laughs) no pun intended, I would love to dive deep into the oxytocin path, like uh, release and again, some of its major functions in association with like trust and bonding and things like that. Sure. Some people also have a medical background and they know that oxytocin is involved in labor and lactation for mothers, but it's called the bonding chemical. And in the animal world, it motivates you to move toward the herd and to follow the herd wherever you go. But 
animals don't really want to be with the herd every minute and humans don't want to be hurt with the herd every minute. So it's the good feeling that I have protection because I'm surrounded by someone I trust. Okay. If the herd is around me, then I'm less likely to get eaten by a predator because the predator will eat them. It's a fundamentally selfish impulse that I want protection from others. Now, a baby wants protection, but it, it baby doesn't even really know how um, endangered it is, how, how um, unskilled it is. It's partly learned. So both the baby and the mother get some at birth, and then soon every chemical is gone, and then you got to do something to get more. So you repeat behaviors that trigger them in your past. So every one of us is repeating behaviors that triggered oxytocin in our past. But it's the good feeling that you can let down your guard. And if you are an animal and you need to eat grass, but you're always watching for predators, you can't eat grass. But if the others are around you and you trust them to notice a predator, then you can just relax and eat. So that's what we want is that feeling of I can relax because you got my back, which once again is fundamentally selfish. Yeah, something actually just came up in my head. It was around like the use of social media. And I guess like with some people that say they, they feel like they can't connect with anyone. They feel like they just can't like connect emotionally, which is a you know, massive problem. Do you want to expand upon what's happening there? Are they potentially lacking in that oxytocin, the natural, normal biological release of oxytocin? Sure. So when a zebra is with its herd, all it cares about is that it can have a place, a physical place. If you're on the edge of the herd, then you're the first one that's going to be eaten by a predator. So over time, you want to push your way into the middle, but then the others are more threatened. So there's always this conflict going on. But if the herd completely rejected you, then you'd be worse off. So it's the positive expectations. And today, people have gotten unrealistic expectations. And that's why they're disappointed. The unrealistic expectation is you should understand me and accept me every minute of every day. I should be able to tell you whatever I think, and you should agree with me all the time. That's just not realistic. And you should be happy for me whenever I'm happy. And you should be sad for me whenever I'm sad. Now, I would like that. But then if you tell me all your stuff, the reality is, I'm not going to agree with you every minute. And sometimes you may be happy about something. And I may think, I don't think that's so good. And you may be sad about something. And I think, oh, I don't think that's so bad. So we can't agree with each other every minute because we're wired by our individual experience. But people have been given unrealistic expectations and then they lose that sense of trust that animals just get from just physically having someone next to them. Mm. And that's what's going on. With the... I guess we can link in, now we can tie in like trauma tying in closely with trust and bond and bonding. Yeah. What sort of research have you looked at in regards to trauma early on in life with mammals? So there's now a trauma industry. It's like the latest sales pitch. 
that all of these consultants have been trained to to promote their service as a treatment for trauma. It's like the stress industry suddenly appeared 20 years ago. This is like the new wrinkle on the stress industry. So now everything is defined as a trauma, every situation. And uh, situations that in the past, people lived with the most horrendous situations all the time. And they just dealt with it and moved on because they would starve if they didn't keep going out and looking for food. They watched their brothers and sisters die in the hut next to them. And then they went out and dug a hole and buried them. (laughs) Then they watched wolves come and dig up the hole and eat the body. Excuse me for saying that was life. So now you're traumatized if you're not invited to a party. Everybody's convinced that that they're traumatized, and I, I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's. I think we have to consider the biological consequences of severe stress, though, early on in in, in childhood, and the repercussions that could have on mental health later on in life. Yeah. So then, if you if that were true then you would have this population of people who had a quote-unquote easy childhood who then grew up and were happy all the time and had good mental health. It's just not true. You will not find those people. In fact, often people who are very successful had a very challenging childhood because they built coping skills, whereas people who had fewer challenges in childhood and didn't build coping skills, and they've gotten sucked into the depression industry, and they've been persuaded that they have this wrong with them, and they have that wrong with them, and they can get it fixed for them. So that's my opinion, apart from like reading the historical. I I know it's, you're not supposed to, I'm not invalidating anybody's pain. Sure, people have had terrible experiences, but whether your mental health problem was caused by X, Y, or Z, the only solution is to recognize that it's an old neural pathway and that the only solution is to build a new pathway that if you have negative expectations that the solution is to build positive expectations and it's hard but it's hard for everyone Mm -hmm. and it would be great if someone can fix it for you and that's ironically that's a positive expectation if I feel lousy and I think oh I have a disorder doctor's going to fix it I feel great because I got an appointment with this doctor who's going to fix it and then long story short if that doesn't work then I put all my energy into getting an appointment with a better doctor who's going to fix it and I can spend my whole life shopping for a better shaman or I could just build positive expectations and that will trigger my happy chemicals mm. with with that i guess with the definition of i guess like happiness for example what are some of the prerequisites to essentially like what do we know about certain situational states that create this feeling of happiness is it when we feel i know you mentioned feeling safe secure things like that but what are some of the requirements for people to feel happy. Sure. So I look at it totally from an animal perspective. So it's not like this philosophical thing that you have to tell yourself animals don't tell themselves anything. And animals are never safe and secure ever. So it's from moment to moment 
It's the meeting of a need. Mm -hmm. And when a need is met, a good chemical is released, then shortly the chemical is metabolized and then you got to meet another need to feel good again. And the chemical, the need triggers action to meet a need. The chemical rewards you with a good feeling when you take action. So then you take action because you anticipate the good feeling. But and, and that anticipation is a real neural pathway. And our bigger brains can anticipate more. That's really what the human brain does is anticipate into the abstract future rather than a monkey only anticipates food like it's a very concrete thing. Hmm. But the big thing is what are these needs? So there's food and water and warmth, but then there are social needs. And we talked about the need to have the protection of others, and that's oxytocin. Then there's a different social need, which is social dominance. And this is the complicated one because no one can consciously admit that they like social dominance and they feel good about it, even though it's easy to see that everyone else likes it. Um, but because of all of these philosophical and spiritual traditions, you have to say that you don't care about it. And so you find different ways that are beneath your conscious verbal brain to get it. So let's just call it pride or being special. So what I do in my work is I have like dozens of different synonyms for this feeling of social dominance. And we use good words when it's us and our friends. And we use bad words when it's someone we don't like, but like a rival social group. But the bottom line is that in the animal world, um, if you are in a position of weakness and you reach for a piece of food, a stronger monkey is going to bite you and you could get permanently disabled or killed. And so you don't reach for a piece of food unless you are stronger than the monkey next to you. Mm. So how do you know that? First, you, we've inherited this brain that constantly compares itself to others, this mammal brain. And when you see that you're stronger, it releases a little bit of serotonin. And that's the good feeling of I got it going on. And what I say is it could be something as simple as you and I are playing poker and I draw a card and it's just the card I needed. So I feel great because I think I'm going to win. And so there's no tabooness around that. It's just that natural feeling that I feel like I'm going to win. And so it feels good. Nothing negative about you, but that natural urge to win. Here's a quick little message to all men listening in to today's show. Do you want to double your energy levels, boost motivation, and increase your focus? If so, you may be interested in my epic men's energy program I've recently launched called Limitless. Now, Limitless is an exclusive 12-week program for men who want to go from feeling tired, unmotivated, or burnt out to highly energetic, driven, and focused. Within the program, I will analyze your own unique biology and lay out a fully personalized health protocol so that you can finally unlock peak physical and cognitive performance. Over the 12 weeks, you will have direct access to me to ensure your results as well as the chance to join me live 
twice a week to ask me anything relating to health protocols and discover cutting-edge men's health info to keep you at the top of your game. Now, spots in this program are extremely limited, so if you're interested in finding out more, make sure you go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash limitless program to reserve the next available call to see if you're a good fit. That's bit.ly forward slash limitless program. You'll also find this link in my bio on my Instagram profile and also my YouTube channel. This is becoming really interesting because that social dominance side of things, I'd love to hear about some human examples of that. For example, climbing the social ladder or the social rank or whatever. Maybe do you want to explore and expand upon that in in further detail, what that social dominance may look like in humans? Sure. There are endless different ways of having social dominance. And again, we more easily see them in others. So since I first went to school, I was always told that this is a big evil about climbing the social ladder. And yet everybody is against the social ladder in the way that they're not doing. So for example, I was always, everyone around me hates people with big cars, but then their hatred of people with big cars is their way of being in the one-up position. So a simple one that, that I also run into all the time is you hate people with more money than you, but then it's okay to say, I want to get a lot of money so I could give it away and save the world. So that's socially acceptable. So mm-hmm. everybody wants this feeling, but then they it's hard to get. So if you find some other way to get it, like one child may want to be better at some video game because they get it that way. Another person by saying, I'm going to save the world. And then another person by like, I'm going to be a movie star. And the bottom line though, is nothing gives it to you all the time because the minute you're in the position of specialness, then the serotonin you release doesn't last. Your body absorbs it in a short time. And that's why everyone's looking for a position of specialness again and again. But you live in a world where 8 billion other people want a position of specialness. So there's always a lot of beta monkeys trying to take the alpha monkey's position. So the alpha monkey is not just sitting around having a good time. They're just as worried as everybody else. Yeah, interesting. With the... What about, I know you mentioned we're wired to be comparative and like comparing ourselves with others. And then there's that quote of comparison is the thief of joy. This is an interesting discussion because I I would like to know more about those that are generally not competitive. Like I personally am, I'm extremely competitive. And I was thinking about this the other day, like just how extremely competitive I am across every element of my life. What about individuals that are not competitive in the slightest? What might be happening there? I'll tell you the truth. I'm not competitive, but it's not because I'm morally superior. It's because I'm convinced I'm going to lose. And I grew up, I always thought, you know what? My mother had a baby, like right after I was born, my mother had another baby a year later. So I was always the one that lost. 
And so I face the world with this presumption that if there's a competition, I'm going to lose. So I'm not going to play. And so that's why I always look toward more individual pursuits. However a person feels about it, I think they could look into their early experience and see whatever that pattern is. And, and it's just to know that it's just a pattern and it's just a physical pathway in your brain and that there are other ways of getting the good feeling. For example, yeah, anytime... If you tell me how other people are doing is I don't want to hear it because then I'm going to feel bad. So mm. I find other ways to feel good about myself. But I would like to say we should not compare ourselves to others. And I say that, but it's impossible. Everybody is still going to do it. So it's better off to consciously notice how you're doing it. And when you're torturing yourself with it and feeling bad, to say there's thousands of different ways to feel like you're in the one-up position and what other ways can I create so that I'm not making myself miserable. Yeah. And also we absorb the ones that our parents do. If your parents made themselves miserable with a certain social comparison, you took it in in your mirror neurons. My parents were always talking about their resentment for people with more money than them. And I just, from the youngest age, I was like, give it a rest that if you had what they had, you'd still be making yourself miserable. Like I could see that. When it comes to, because money is something I've, we've never, I've never spoken about this on my podcast. And it's something that I've really wanted to recently. Maybe let's look at what is the equivalent of money in, in, in animals? Is it like just an abundance of food? Yes. Okay. So. I talk about this in my book. It's called I'm Mammal, How to Make Peace with the Animal Urge for Social Power. So when animals have any extra energy left over after they find food, they invest it in fighting the guy above them in the hierarchy (laughs) because that's like saving for a rainy day because the more dominant individuals get more of the food. And so... When you're more dominant, you get more of the food. Now, this is so taboo that all of the evidence has been covered up since around the 2000 when the internet started. So you don't see almost any mention of this on the internet, but any textbook on evolutionary biology before the era of crazy political correctness or any of David Attenborough's nature videos before 2000, it's, it was just the obvious fact that everyone, and you just tell me any species, and I can tell you how it is that they raise themselves in the hierarchy and how that promotes their genes and gets them more food. Mm. With, I guess that's something that I'm curious about. You said that those after they've been, let's say these animals have been fed, you said those that have extra remaining energy, they then challenge the one above them in the hierarchy. It's almost like then how does that equate to like in, in humans, human species, once we have food, but then we have like extra savings, like I'd love to discuss that. Yeah. So simple example that I use in all my books is 
person who thinks I'll be happy forever if I could be an actor and they get a little part and they're so happy, but then pretty soon they realize that everybody else has a bigger part than them. And then they feel bad. So they think I'll be happy forever if I get a leading role, but then finally they get a leading role and they realize that somebody has a bigger mansion than they have. And they think I'll be happy forever if I get a big mansion. Then when they get that, They have everything money can buy, but then they don't have an Academy Award or a Golden Globe Award. So then they think I'll be happy forever if I win a big award. But then once they win the big award, then new actors are coming along who get new awards and the spotlight is no longer on them. (laughs) So this is how life works. This is how the brain works. And like I said, the best you could do is be consciously aware of it. And now I forgot the question. Did I answer it? No, that's in, in alignment with it. It's in regards to the equivalent. Let's say, for example, an individual, a human has an, an abundance of money, I- including safety and food, and maybe they have a, a loving partner, for example. How does that sort of play out there? Dopamine rewards you for the next, for meeting an unmet need. And it's always the next thing that stimulates dopamine because the anticipation, it's the act of stepping towards something that stimulates dopamine. So once you get it, no more dopamine. And so that's the treadmill feeling that people have. And the very common example is you work very hard to get a certain milestone in your life. And then after you get it, you have an empty feeling. So the solution that I talk about in all of my work is that we need to set goals for ourselves. And it's very important because if you don't, then you blame, if you worked really hard to get something, you blame your boss, you blame the company, you blame your partner, you blame the city or country you live in. You don't know that it's yourself. Mm. Now, when I say we always need a goal, a lot of people think well, that's bad because you shouldn't always be running after something. I talk about little goals then. I'm just going to, one thing I did is like when I take my walk every day, that I would walk on a different street. And I would always try to find a way that I could walk to a place that I hadn't walked to before. But as the years went by, I couldn't do that anymore. And frankly, I I love to travel. And so I'd been like, I'd be excited, like researching my next travel, but I've actually been everywhere. It's really hard. But so I talk about a small, a a short-term goal, long-term goal, and a middle-term goal, so that when you can't move toward one, you can move toward another. But this is what stimulates our dopamine. And the problem is not the world. The problem is that our lives are so easy that after we get enough food and water, that we have energy left (laughs) and that we can be grateful for that, but nobody is. Yeah. Yeah, that's something interesting there. I was actually just thinking about the dopamine, something there in relation to, so obviously taking the pursuit of action, driving us towards our goals. And then what about those individuals that say, like there's a whole side of this, which is like, why can't you just sit and stop trying to chase the next reward and just be grateful for the moment now, grateful for the present moment. So do you want to expand upon that? Sure. That's, that has its purpose. And the reason is because 
When people don't understand their dopamine, they repeat whatever behavior triggered dopamine in their past. So that could be partying, getting a cigarette, getting junk food, because those trigger dopamine in the past. And it's unfortunate that now everybody is blaming this on whoever made the junk food. Like it's their fault that it triggers your dopamine. No, it's because you're like, the minute you have nothing to do, bad thoughts come into your head. You could think of if a gazelle fills its belly, okay, now I'm free to look for predators. And with your human brains, okay, now I'm free to look for potential threats. You're going to find one. You're going to find something wrong because that's what our brain is good at. So now my brain is full of things that are wrong. So I need to do something fast to make me feel good. So everyone has that bad habit that they used in their past to make them feel good. So the first step to getting away from that bad habit is often this skill that you mentioned of being in the present moment and doing nothing. But I call that the exit ramp. You're leaving the bad highway, but you can't be on the exit ramp forever. Then you have to get to the good highway and you won't have that until you build it. So that's yeah. With I'd like to tie in Loretta the association between novelty and dopamine. You said going on a different pathway or different walk. Humans are inherent inherently inclined to seek novelty. Is or are they more inclined to seek the same route and the comfort zone, like staying in their comfort zone, sort of thing? That's a great question. I don't think I had that before. Very good. Okay. So we seek both of them because we're always trying to meet our survival needs. So both of those are effective strategies for meeting survival needs. So for example, if I'm really hungry and I need to find food, I'm going to take the path that has reliably led to food in my past. So that's the basics. But then if I go there and there's no food, then I'm stuck. So what do I do? Now I'm really hungry and I have less energy in my reserve tank. So now I really need to rely, look for something reliable that's going to get me food. But on another day, when my belly is full and I'm relaxed, I'm like, I wonder if there's more food on the other side of that mountain. And when I go to the other side of that mountain, the real the real reward is finding protein food because that's what's most scarce. First, you just have to meet your calorie needs, but then you find protein. And if I find a lot of fruit on a tree and I'm so happy, if I stay next to that tree forever, I'll never get any protein. And protein is what builds the muscles that and builds the strength that basically keeps the young alive. Long story short, I can explain. Novelty is when I've got enough fruit, I look for protein, but maybe I find a fishing hole with a lot of fish and I stay there for three days and fill up on fish, but now I need to find some fruit or now I need to find some drinking water. It's meeting a different need which is promoting my survival. So that's what the brain rewards. And that's why novelty promotes dopamine. Stipulates well, dopamine. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And also, I'm, I'm, just, I'm really happy that you brought up the importance of protein here, because this is, I'm always looking at protein from like the very like specifics, like amino acids and their functions and things like that. You're suggesting that 
we animals seek out protein to build muscle, which obviously is one of protein's major functions is to build muscle, promote a stronger body, a fitter body, more to reproduce, helping that reproductive capacity and power. Is there, do you think there's like a, I'd like to expand upon that, like the importance of protein, getting that protein first sort of thing. Sure. So a couple of things. One is that when I say animals look for it, it's not conscious, but I think that in a lot of languages, especially in pre-industrial areas, there's a word for protein hunger. So the body can physiologically distinguish like I've had enough calories, but I haven't had enough protein. And I went to Africa in my 20s and there were a lot of babies with distended bellies, which is, it's called core, a protein deficiency. So you've had enough calories, but you haven't had enough protein. Makes your body retain water. And the retaining your water bloats your belly. So they have these huge distended bellies, but they're really starving, but they have enough calories. They just don't have enough protein. So the body is very aware of that. And on some non-verbal level, humans are too. And another interesting thing is when a mammal is born, they're getting mother's milk and that has calories and protein packaged together. But in the animal world, nobody gives you food except mother's milk. If you want any other food, you got to get it yourself. So the little monkey has to find plants and they get the plants and they eat them. But then they also have to work harder for protein. And that's like the the big sort of separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls. It's like the biggest reward in nature is what I'm saying. Yeah. Actually, something that I thought about Loretta is in regards to the disappointment that some individuals experience if they don't meet their goal. Why is it that some humans are very resilient And they're like, no, no, I want to try and strive to reach that again. And others have that social defeat or that defeatist mindset. What's happening there? Yes. So first, it's not necessarily overall that you may have negative expectations about one area in your life and positive expectations about another. So the simple example is like somebody who's good at making money, but can't get a date. And then another person who's good at getting a date, but not good at making money. And so we can all look at our expectations in each of those areas. But the interesting thing is that expectations are a real physical pathway in your brain. So positive expectation is from past dopamine. Negative expectation is from past cortisol. But the expectation is not a conscious, logical, rational thing. It's just connections between all the neurons active at that moment. If I had something went wrong in my past or something triggered my cortisol in my past, everything linked to that is going to trigger it. So the famous example is if a horse is beaten by a man with a red hat, then it's afraid of men with red hats. So it's like the same thing with our negative expectations. And if a person had some huge trauma, you could say, then they're having negative expectations about everything related to that. But if they didn't have a huge trauma, then whatever did trigger their cortisol, like, 
you promised that you'd buy me a candy bar and you didn't buy me a candy bar. So I'm going to cry. And I have a huge tantrum. And that I wires me like I get candy bars by having a huge tantrum, but I also have to have the huge tantrum. So uh, all this cortisol builds a huge pathway. And now like I have to have a huge, tan- I feel like I have to have a huge tantrum in order to get anything. <laughs> Let's, I'm just thinking about what happens in, in adulthood, for example, when. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I just made some connections with some people that I know that (laughs) versus those that like, when they, let's say they don't meet a goal, they're actually like, they don't throw a tantrum. They actually take like ownership and they're just like more resilient and robust. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that is usually, I think a person who didn't get the candy bar handed to them when they were young and they had to try and fail and try and fail. And then on the 10th try, they got it. So in the future, after they fail for five times, they're like, Oh, let's just try again. And what I, the way I explain this in my work is with lions. So lions fail nine out of 10 hunts or 19, 19 out of 20 is another statistic I heard. So why don't the lions just give up after nine hunts? Because they're starving and nobody feeds them. That's, that, that is pretty interesting with that resilience aspect. And also the cortisol that you mentioned before in regards to, let's say, modern day, what's, what is the modern day understanding of cortisol and how, how do we describe that? So first, I just want to make it clear that I'm not speaking for academic science because when you say the modern day, it implies that this is what the latest studies are, but they have their own agenda and their own paradigm. And so I'm speaking from an animal perspective. Okay. Yeah. I'm saying this because I had this reader that's, that wrote to me and said, Oh, cortisol is not bad. You got it all wrong. So there's always some late, this constant war in academia for different interpretations And the research is all funded by people with agendas. And one of the things that really bugs me, you asked me about cortisol, all the research is done without regard for, so people have cortisol when they wake up in the morning, but most people wake up with an alarm clock and that's a huge cortisol trigger. And nobody distinguishes in the study how much cortisol with the person who woke up with an alarm clock versus how much cortisol with the person who woke up naturally. A a lot of the research, I don't have a lot of confidence in. But anyway, so tell me the question again, because I lost track. I guess like in relation to the modern day or like how do we understand the functions of cortisol today? Oh, okay. okay. So it's the brain's natural alarm system. So what I said before, if you think of it as a GPS, that a good feeling tells you to go towards something and a bad feeling tells you to pull back. So there's nothing inherently negative about that. Oh, I better pull back. For example, um, if I'm trying to catch a gazelle and the gazelle has gotten so far away that there's no way I can catch it, I will starve to death if I keep running after the one that got away. So I need to know when to give up and to say, you know what, that's not 
good for me. So the obvious human example is if you have a crush on someone and they don't like you back at a certain point, you are never going to reproduce if you chase that one prospect forever. So the bad feeling of unrequited love is like the bad feeling of, oh my God, I've chased this gazelle for an hour, but I can see I'm not going to get it. This is what I call disappointment. So disappointment needs to feel bad to get you to give up on something that you can't get. If it didn't feel really bad, you'd just keep trying and then you would be in a worse situation from a survival perspective because you would be making a bad investment of your energy. And that's why I say that people who have had relatively comfortable lives and the worst thing they've ever had is disappointment is that they still have a life full of cortisol. And then teachers now, they don't have a lot of enforcement of standards. So their way of motivating children is to make them, quote unquote, dream big. So they convince everybody that they could be an astronaut or a doctor or president of the world or something. So that leads to a path of a lot of disappointment. Yeah, interesting. It's been a, it's been a really fascinating discussion, Loretta. I've really I've learned a lot of new things here and really grateful to have your perspective here on the show. So do you want to let my listeners know where they can learn more about some of your work if they want to check out more of your work? Sure. InnerMammalInstitute.org. InnerMammalInstitute.org. And I have a lot of free resources and also links to my book. And I have a new online course coming out. Awesome. So I'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes. But Loretta, thank you for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.